Hello, public power aficionados. I'm Ben Sverrier, and I'm honored to join Public Power Underground today. I've worked on Western power issues for about a decade, enjoying different perspectives as a renewable energy project developer, a PPA broker, a climate policy advocate, and Twitter gadfly. I still own the email address for PUDPAC, my erstwhile foray into PUD elections and public power governance from like 2012, maybe? So I was listening to last week's episode, and I was daunted by filling Bill Drummond's shoes as guest host. My first job in energy was reimagining the purpose and leadership of public power in the Pacific Northwest following Steve Wright's retirement from BPA. We call this effort Renew BPA, and it feels right to revisit this effort in light of where we are today and to perhaps provide something of a call to action in response to Bill's excellent pitch on how to bring the next generation into public power. So go back and read the speeches FDR made at the advent of public power about the national cause of electrification. In 1937, FDR gave an address at the Bonneville Dam where he boasted that, and I quote, instead of piling up armaments for purposes of war, we in America are wiser in using our wealth on projects like this, the Bonneville Dam, which will give us more wealth, better living, and greater happiness for our children. In no place has public power created more wealth, better living, and greater happiness than in the Pacific Northwest. And it's time that we harness that energy for a similar purpose today. As we witness what is happening in Ukraine and with market volatility around the world, electrification is again an answer, and public power is again the way to do it. We replaced kerosene, why not gasoline? Why not methane? The benefits of rural communities in particular would be immense, like the prosperity borne out over the last 85 years on a foundation of clean energy. Instead of sending a dollar to Putin or pick a dictator of your choice, just so you can drive 10 miles to your ski hill or your fishing hole, why, what about sending a quarter to your local PUD instead? for local, clean electricity. Then you can go and spend the rest of your dollar doing whatever uh, local brewery would probably be my choice. Public power has all the tools it needs to lead in this effort. So let's renew that vision and see the cause of public power lead again for the century to come. Renew BPA and let's start the show. We started in hard times to Welcome to Public Power Underground, Public Power's premier infotainment program that covers public power and public power adjacent news from a power department's perspective. I am new friend of the underground and a recovering solar developer, Twitter gadfly, and a manager with the carbon-free electricity practice at the Rocky Mountain Institute mostly focused on accelerating the clean transition to wholesale in wholesale power markets. And I am this week's celebrity guest host, Ben Sereria. I'm Jason Fortney, editor of California Energy Markets, a one-time attendee of the White House Correspondents' Dinner and this week's podcast ambassador from News Data. This is Aaron Guillory, the star of Aaron Reports, co-star of Public Power Underground and controller at Klatskanai People's Utility District. 
And I'm the creative director of Public Power Underground, manager of Cloud Sky Beauty's Power Department, and producer for today's recording, Paul Dockery. Welcome, welcome, Ben. Wonderful, Thank you. wonderful monologue. Great stuff. Inspiring. I'm happy to be here. This yes, is the only got- the only crowd I can wear my my Ferk shirt and uh, really feel like I'm fitting in. And feel like it, your your dorkiness is appreciated, right? Yes, as a, as a I'm also non jurisdictional personally, so I you know I'm sure the public power folks appreciate that. Yeah, absolutely, we do. I really enjoyed what it, we want to get you to buy some public power underground merch. What if I had a shirt that said "More wealth, better living, and greater happiness"? Then could we get you? Could we get your money to get oh, some merch? Yeah, for that cause. That is, that is how I would like to spend my wealth is on public power merch. Yes. Yes. That's exactly what I like to hear. Hello, Jason. I see you. I see you. I noticed you, you have attended the White Horse Correspondence Dinner. I'm paying attention. Yeah. I guess you're reading my, my Twitter. Yep. I went in 2007. Yeah. Interesting. Very interesting. Did you wear a tux? No. Jason Forney in a tux? Was I imagine it. I had a, it's funny because I taken a little hiatus from energy reporting and I had my motorcycle magazine that had just ended and I came back to DC. So I didn't have the money for a tux, put it that way. I'd been <laughs> waiting tables. Uh, so it, as I said in my tweet, it was a little unusual to go from waiting tables to hanging out with uh, everyone at the correspondence dinner. Yeah. I can, I can definitely imagine. Bush. That was pretty cool. Yeah, it was fun. Uh, we had uh, Stephen Colbert had roasted Bush so hard the previous year oh, that yeah. yeah that uh they brought in rich little and he was pretty tame but he was probably my favorite when i was a kid so that was that was kind of cool yeah that's fun and gillary yeah, this is a long hiatus we have not had aaron gillary for uh on the show in months it seems how long has it been gillary it's been a couple months <laughs> the original sure. star of aaron reports the original <laughs> i missed you yeah nice to have Thank you back you Good to be missed. Yeah, I've been, it's been a lot going on. I mean, but you know, when you can trade in, bring in Karen Heim and some other stars in here, I will, I will completely bow out with no, no worry, no worry or heartache. <laughs> I mean, they aren't replacements. They're just, you know. No, there's much more glamorous than the White House Correspondence Center. I'll just say that event's a little bit overrated, but. A little bit. <laughs> Not this, the correspondence in there. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Good clarification there, Jason. <laughs> I appreciate uh, that. For those listening on the podcast, Erin is the only one currently wearing Public Power Underground merch, uh, and she understood the assignment. Well done, Erin. Thank you. This was my one time, my one time in months to shine, so I took it seriously. Well done. <laughs> okay, I think, are we ready to get into it, everybody? Yeah. Ready Do for it. it. Yep. This is, uh, so this is season four, episode 14. Already, geez. Uh, on today's recording, we'll discuss all sorts of energy news and the most exciting acronyms, including BPA in the EIM, Krepsi YRAB, all things uh, transmission, new scale IPO, another Wall Street Journal article, that the WSJ article, obviously, Aaron reports, and a bunch of uh, witty banter in between. But before we get started, Jason is going to read a quick word from our presenting sponsor. Presenting sponsor of Public Power Underground is the Energy Authority. The Energy Authority is a nonprofit energy portfolio management company owned by public power entities like us. TEA's mission is to help clients maximize, maximize the value of their assets and meet their power supply goals. 
TEA does this by providing expertise in energy trading, advanced analytics, renewable solutions, and a whole lot more. Over 60 public power utilities have partnered with TEA to tackle their energy future. So if you're looking for an energy authority to partner with in navigating the uncertain future of our industry, visit TEAINC.org to learn more. That's TEAINC.org, the energy authority. They're as underground as it gets. Thanks, Jason. We're starting this week, like most weeks, checking in on power market indicators in the Northwest with our first segment. Aaron Reports. Take it away, Aaron. Let's do it. Good to be back. This is Aaron Reports with Aaron Reporting, where we get up to speed on Northwest market indicators for May 9th, 2022. I'm Aaron Guillory, and I've got your market update for the week. Spot market power in the Northwest for delivery today is at $68.38, with natural gas at $7.04 per MMBTU, translating to a spark spread of 1914 and a heat rate of 9,700. Spot power in Southern California is at $44.17, and in Northern California, $63.78. May balance of month at mid-sea is $71.95. June power at mid-sea is down $4.05 from a week ago to $51.45, and Sumas gas is at $8.20, translating to a heat rate of 6,300 BTU per kilowatt hour. June power at Palo Verde is down $4.50 from a week ago to $118.25 per megawatt hour. August power at mid-sea is trading down $10 per megawatt hour from a week ago at $195.05, with Sumas gas at $9.13, translating to a heat rate of 21,400 BTU per kilowatt hour. At Palo Verde, August power is at $256.75 per megawatt hour, down 445 from a week ago. In fish counts, 1,942 adult spring Chinook were counted at Bonneville yesterday, May 8th, bringing the year-to-date today to 86,534. October through September flows at the Dalles for water year 2022 are currently forecasted to be 96% of normal, and April to September is at 97%. Outflow at the Dallas peaked over this morning at 235.9 KCFS. Day-ending elevation at Grand Coulee yesterday was 1,253, and peak outflow this past week was 146.4 KCFS on May 4th. Checking in on Anstrogy's aggregated basin data on snow in the region, the aggregation of all snow in the Columbia River Basin that'll flow through Bonneville Dam is estimated to be 122.38% of normal. Spending a beat at Bonneville's balancing authority. Peak load this past week was about 6,707 on May 3rd at 7.15 a.m. During loads, peak hydro generation was at 6,820. Wind gen was 2,448. Conventional units were at 179. And nuclear was 1,147. All units and megawatts. Enzo for the February, March, April periods, it's at negative 1.0. Oceanic Nino Index. The multivariate Enzo Index for February March is negative 1.3, and the SST Consolidated Nino Forecast indicates that La Nina conditions are likely to continue through summer 2022. This week in NOAA climate forecast, the six to ten day outlook has temp above normal and precipitation below normal for the region. The thirty day outlook issued May sixth shows leaning for below normal temperatures and below normal precipitation for part of Oregon and Idaho. 90-day seasonal outlooks have not changed since the last update on April 21st and show above average temperature and below normal precipitation for the region. Special thanks to Answergy for letting us use their dashboards and big thanks to Luji for compiling this week's report. 
And that's all we've got for this update. Outstanding job by Luigi, as always. Just a great job by Luigi. It's great reporting. Markets. There's, there's a lot going on this last week. It feels like it's been eventful. I, it has been a very yeah. eventful I mean, week. You hear that like rundown. There's so many things that stand out. And there's like some stuff that don't even make the report that are notable. California, Kaiso hitting uh, 100%, you know, renewables generation to meet load, but they have to keep something spinning, right? So a lot of that was exported. And at the same time, you've got gas at over seven bucks a million BTU. I mean, that's, yeah, that is, it's, just it remains the- spicy. Yeah, looking at the spots uh, posted on EIA's website, and Northern California is at $9.59 per MMBTU shown today, which is knocking on $10, knocking on the door. I don't know. Ouch. That translates to electric prices, even if you got a, a lot of renewables on the grid. That does translate. Oh, yeah. Without a doubt. The marginal, I mean, and also the hydro number, I mean, the amount of snow that's going to be flowing through the Bonville system. 122%. Those numbers don't make sense to me as someone who follows the Central Sierra reports, as uh, Jason does. It's like, share some of the love down here, guys. Yeah, I'm a little jealous. All that water you all have up there. <laughs> yeah, a lot of it comes, you know, the Canadian Rockies they, that's uh, in the Columbia River Basin. You got to love that. You get a lot of snow uh, just from up there, up north. I, I, I figure it'll be coming water. down south later this summer in the form of electrons. Yeah, so well. Another Look noteworthy thing as we're passing through all of the graphics is inflows are up at Bonneville and at uh, Grand Coulee. That's the green line, and it's going up, up, up. We are seeing a lot of side flows entering uh, the the hydro system, uh, which has been uh, – it'll be good for uh, the refilling of dams, which is what those side flows are currently contributing to. But power prices this week have been noteworthy. Yeah, for early May. For early May. Yeah, shoulder yeah. season. Yeah. It should be a wild summer. Yeah, it's gonna it's gonna be fun. <laughs> fun? Um <laughs> that was a question. <laughs> so thank you, Aaron. Uh next up is our weekly walkthrough public power and public power adjacent news in a segment we like to call public power desktop. Paul, give us the typewriter. And Jason, take it away. Well, Speaking of BPA, BPA began operating in the Western energy imbalance market on Tuesday, May 3rd. Tucson Electric Power also began trading in the EIM on May 3rd, following the entry of Avista Utilities and Tacoma Public, Util- Tacoma Public Utilities in April. In a prepared statement, BPA Administrator John Hairston said, quote, joining the Western EIM is a monumental and meaningful step in the modernization of our operations that unlocks a range of benefits for Bonneville and our customers, unquote. BPA's path to the EIM formally began in the winter of 2018. During the public process leading up to joining, uh, BPA commissioned a third-party analysis of their participation by E3, or Energy and Environmental Economics. E3's analysis forecast a 20 million to 34 million annual net dispatch benefit against ongoing annual expenses of 6.9 million. That benefit level would allow for quick recovery of an estimated 30 million to 35 million in startup costs. The EIM now has 19 participants serving 77% of the demand for electricity in the Western US. By 2023, it expects to have 22 participants serving nearly 80% of that demand. Coverage and clearing up was by Steve Ernst, 
link to the article and press releases will be in the show notes. So Ben, we're interested in your on your thoughts on BPA coming into the EIM. It's awesome. It's 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 unambiguously awesome. I was referencing this renewed BPA effort that I worked on back in like whatever that was, 2012, 2013 or something. And uh, one of the topics that we were thinking of, you know, talking about was boy, we gotta get BPA talking about markets, we gotta get better integration in the grid. I believe at that time, and I, I could be mistaken, so direct angry tweets at me, not at you know the rest of the show here, but I don't even think BPA was scheduling on uh, inter-hour basis in 2012, 2013. Or like it wasn't, it was, they had massive upgrades that they needed to their own system in order to get to the point where during the EIM would look attractive. And they've made those investments. They've come a long way, I think, from the way the early 20s or early 20, 2000s. Uh, view of markets and the overhang of the California energy crisis, et cetera. And it's really wonderful to see that sort of leadership uh, joining a bunch of other public power players uh, in the EIM. You have to expect this will increase benefits pretty materially. Um, for I mean, the EIM has really been clicking for a number of years now. I think you know benefits are in the billions uh, collectively. And uh, it'll be really cool to see what Bonneville does from that sort of foundational platform of integration. Yeah, it was invest- cool to be at the. It was cool to be, you know, at at, at uh, Pepsi, which we'll talk about in a moment. But like to be amongst the whole sort of Western energy community uh, when this when this happened, it was. Oh, it was did they? Did they? Did they? Were you still drinking at midnight? And did they? Were there? Was there a round of cheers uh, when Bonneville <laughs> went live? Anyway, was it? Was it? Did you get a tweet? Did you tweet? Everybody I actually just didn't turn the lights on and off a lot just to make sure the imbalance was working. <laughs> That's yeah, awesome. we got to get some volatility going yeah, yeah. to get the benefits to the market. Uh, they did invest a huge amount of capital and resources into making sure their systems were upgraded and they could participate. And a lot of, um, you know, the, the value that had been communicated is developing their muscles so that they better understood and had some experience in engaging in a market so they knew better what to expect the next time around. Yeah, totally. I was reading um, at, at, at referenced from this show, um, the public generating pools uh, report from last year, tracking market development history, going back into the 90s, the Indigo effort, etc. Great. Yeah, great, great reporting. Report. Yeah, Big yeah, plug. Yeah, yeah, huge. Well done. Um, and it was really, one of the interesting things for me coming out of that was, was looking at the questions that BPA had to answer to even consider, you know, when they were thinking about their own Northwest SCED operations, or, you know, there's a couple of different exploratory groups looking at different options for the Northwest. And yeah, I am being part of that. And there's a bunch of, you know, the legal situation around BPA and public utilities and the Columbia River system in the Northwest is uh, uh, direct constrained by a whole bunch of uh, interesting pieces of legislation. And getting some of the legal answers on how they could participate yeah. and what that participation looks like really set the stage for joining the EIM. And now when we're in conversations about day ahead market, et cetera, um, it's it, like, as you say, flexing your muscles, they're in a much better position to even start to talk about those issues. Yeah. You had to actually, I'm sure they're sore from the you know lift of getting all of that documented down on a rod and figuring out how you could actually operate under the organizing statutes within a market. It's a big lift and it's a big milestone for the Northwest. Uh, Guillory, I don't know if I mentioned this to you, but uh, uh, we may have to, we may have to talk about the accounting implications for CloudScan IPUD and maybe uh, some different accounts. It'll be fine, Aaron. It'll be fine. Don't worry about it. Oh, I lost I'm it. looking forward to it. <laughs> 
thanks. It's always it's a, interesting to hear from you guys on the operational side. You know, I don't have so much um, view into that. So yeah, great commentary, Ben. Again, if you ever want to be an energy reporter, yeah. <laughs> 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 the the glamorous roles at news data. Maybe you could be a podcast host. Look. You want, yeah. you want to take over for public power underground? Uh, ben, you're doing great here. You're doing. I, I'm, in it, I'm in it yeah. for the correspondence dinner, but I find out that you don't <laughs> include California energy markets on that. So, uh, um, Paul, uh, are we ready for the next typewriter? Yeah, absolutely. We are. I'll just keep going on EIM. You know, Aaron's uh, got our next story. Typewriter. All right. Jason and Ben both attended last week's CREP-C-YRAP conference in San Diego. The acronym stands for Committee on Regional Electric Power Cooperation hyphen Western Interconnection Regional Advisory Body Conference. Jason wrote articles for news data that appeared in both Clearing Up and California Energy Markets, and Ben live tweeted. Links to both types of content will be linked in the show notes so you can consume coverage of the conferences in whichever format you prefer or both. We'll hand it off to them to provide some commentary and notes, starting with Ben, since he's the celebrity guest host. Uh, thanks, Aaron. I, so for, I think it needs to be said, I, I got to get a plug here for Krebsy YRAB, which sounds like something you'd hear in a medical office, like, you know, talk to your doctor, Krebsy YRAB is right for you. But it is the best to, for my money, the best uh, energy conference in the West. And it's not really even a conference. It's like a really substantive meeting. It's all the state energy offices, all the state regulators. They meet in a windowless room in San Diego, which is just where you, exactly where you want to be. Um, and the agenda goes from 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. And there's like two breaks and they're short. It's free. You don't need to pay anything to register. Um, and they even give you a discounted hotel block. Uh, and it just covers a whole slew of really interesting topics that are happening in the West. The focus of this particular meeting happens twice a year. This was the spring meeting, and uh, most of the focus was on uh, market design and transmission planning and develop, um, which uh, sort of are the background of every type of conversation at Krebs CY Rep, but uh, was particularly meaningful, I think, in this uh, iteration because of the FERC rule over that had just come out, the uh, developments of Day Ahead and Western Resource Adequacy Program offerings in the West, things that have been discussed on this podcast in previous episodes very well. And uh, generally had, like in my view, a lot of excitement around the tangible progress and trust that has been built amongst a myriad of stakeholders that truly uh, this time is different. Every time people talk about market growth or integration, transmission development, any sort of new development like that in the West, I think there's a begging the question a little bit, which is like, well, we've tried this since 1995, no dice, why now? And I think there seems to be growing consensus, not in every area, but growing consensus that this can be done with iterative baby steps and that this time is in fact different. Jason, is this time different? Yeah, I think so. I've noticed the same thing, uh, a lot more focus on collaboration regionally. Uh, not just at, at this event, but in general, you know, since uh, Elliot Mainzer uh, came to Kaiso, he's really focused on that, and I think it's paying off. He was, of course, with BPA before that, so he's a trusted name in the West, and um, maybe get over a few of the humps that we've had with, you know, trusting California um, taking a greater role regionally in markets. 
And yeah, um, judging from the questions and the conversations, I I do see sort of a newer spirit of cooperation. A lot of renewable standards coming into these different states where they they need off ramps for this energy, and uh, you know, hopefully, we'll see more of that as as we go forward. So. I, I'm a, a, a little different take here. It doesn't seem like it's different because of trust in California. Uh, yeah. And, and I, I actually want to, I'd love to hear you guys' take from the meeting. Cause for me, it seems almost like what's different this time is maybe the, the problems bigger and it's closer and the Southwest is talking to the Northwest. Is mm-hmm. that new? Is that different? Is that one of the reasons it's different this time? I could, I could see that playing a role, you know, just the resource tightness. Uh, ben might offer a little more, you know, detailed uh, commentary on that. But uh, yeah, I would assume so. Um, you know, you have the Northwest Hydro, uh, the Southwest Arizona rely on. You have the new wheel through rules in Kaiso that are giving some heartburn. Um, but yeah, I, th- I think that I think you're accurate with that. Do you have any thoughts? Yeah, I, you know, well, I, I wouldn't say necessarily that it's distrust in, in California or that. Yeah, I probably shouldn't have framed it that No, way. no, no. I, I that was off the, I, off the I hip did. a little bit there, yeah. but there's still but skepticism I, of California. Sure, no, no. I think there's a lot of uh, quite legitimate skepticism of, of, of California, particularly from the sp- standpoint of changing governance structures to allow for an RTO. But I think what yeah. made this particular conversation uh, the other week a little bit different than previous Krepsis is the RTO was itself sort of a long range goal, aspirational. I think there was one panel that really talked about it, but most of the focus was on much more tangible, achievable discussions. And so when we have success of the EIM, and as we were just talking about, the answers, some of the questions say that BPA needs to have, et cetera, that, and people start to see the tangible benefits of that sort of wide footprint, you know, redispatch, then there makes the space for a conversation about the enhanced day ahead market, which obviously isn't live yet, but for a day ahead option on that similar type platform, you also have SPP offering markets plus. So there's multiple different conversations in different parts of the region going on about this. It just, it's a, it's not as big a lift as saying, okay, we're, you know, tomorrow's the RTO go date and we have a long way to get, and there's a lot of different you know, distance between here and there. So it, that iterative process amongst parties that are voluntarily entering into that conversation and have worked together and see benefits from sharing with each other tangibly, that mm-hmm. is materially different than before. Yeah. Some of the flexing of the muscles, like we talked about earlier, we've demonstrated some competency and capability to do th- similar things. I actually think, I actually think maybe I'll give credit to the resource adequacy program. And that coordination uh, on Western utilities. And I would posit that part of the, at least hopefulness that I hear in the, amongst people, unnamed sources, uh, Dan Catchpole teaches me really well how to do this, unnamed sources that I may have talked to, I don't know. This isn't sourced anyway. Uh, the, part of it is also maybe that the SPP's Market Plus is also different than California. Then maybe there's an option other than uh, an entity that we have some maybe... Uh, like skepticism around still. Yeah, sure. And, but, and that's not, and I mean, I'd add to that a third, un, you know, option to reveal itself, right? Like uh, I, there's a lot of member driven organizations in the West and yep. each one of them is following the direction uh, and support of its membership. 
And I think in the spirit of public power, that's a delightful position to be in where all those parties have to reach some sort of consensus in order to move forward. And so I think that creates a lot of different tables. There's groups and forums where different options could arise that would help bring integration to the West that would be beneficial when we think about the energy transition and climate impact more broadly. Yeah. If I asked you to read the tea leaves a little bit, how much of the diff- it's different this time do you think is on the incremental and EDAM and how much of that conversation was on how, how big a component in that conversation was Markets Plus at CrepCY, Rab? Was there a lot of conversation about Markets Plus or more around EDAM? This is journalism happening live. I don't recall a lot of uh, conversation about Markets Plus. Do you, do you Ben? Of course, I wasn't there for There is less. I would say, yeah. I mean, the real action at Krepsi Ryrab obviously happening, you know, off of the official program. Um, Which you were also at, but you can't report on. That's what you're saying. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> joking. Other windowless rooms. I don't know. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I, I know very, you know, people aren't going to like show their cards. I think there's been quite a bit of development with the EDAM and the straw proposal had just come out. So there was a little bit less to say as people digest that. Mm-hmm. Um, SPP markets plus is more baked, but the question I've always had, and again, I'm, you know, I'd love this to be answered. Um, this is a savvy audience is, you know, for folks in the Southwest, does SPP's footprint, how, basically my question is, how does SPP move West? The, yes, into the Mountain West Transmission Group. I see, obviously, there's seams there and opportunities there. And there's sort of like that slice into New Mexico. Like, how does this how do they move from a physical system perspective? Are there as many benefits as they move West? And how does that affect the way that say APS will view them as opposed to a Kaiso offering considering the scene between um, Arizona and California, um, not to mention Nevada. So Hmm. I'm going to tie one of the things we did not cover. And I don't think we even covered it last week was Dan Catchpole report on a letter from 15 utilities uh, saying that they wanted to fully evaluate or make sure that markets plus was fully developed before uh, it's in clearing up. Go read it. Dan Catchpole did great work on it. Um, But some of the like there were Southwest utilities included in that letter. And part of me wonders if um that they want to see that too, right? They want to know how it works. And that's going to be a large component of the decision going forward. But given the issues the Southwest has with California, it's going to be a, it may, do you, hey, hey, this is a take. Do you think it's a, like a higher barrier to entry for a Southwest utility than a Northwest utility? 2001 happened in 2001. 2021 happened in 2021. It was 2021, right? That's when they cut the schedules or was it 2020? 20 was it 2020 it was closer point remains it was, it was closer in time is it a, it a greater barrier to entry a greater skepticism of kaiso in the southwest now than the northwest Ooh, this is a take i haven't been I, to the southwest recently okay that's you're asking good. if trust between arizona and california has declined like relatively relative like yeah. relative to the northwest we are all familiar at least are familiar with this, the the undergoing skepticism, right? This is a cultural issue from the Northwest of California. Now there's the Arizona. This is like a relative, like this is a, 
I don't know. The, uh, there's a game here that I, if I'd have thought about it, I probably could. <gasps> Elliot Mainzer game. We're interviewing Elliot Mainzer. Uh, news, uh, NWPPA's annual meeting. Elliot Mainzer will be there and we'll be recording an interview in person with Elliot Mainzer. And maybe there's an element awesome. here. There's a game coming. Whew, I'm wasting a lot of time in this episode <laughs> talking about a future episode. Uh, but Guillory, you think, you think there's a California game in there? You're the native Californian here. Uh, so you think I can come up with a California game with you? Some elements here? Um, yeah, always. Yeah. 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 <laughs> okay. I might have to come work with you on the California <laughs> angle of my I game. Know, um, the, the ACC, the Corporation Commission, went pretty crazy about uh, California's uh, wheel, new wheel, wheel through proposals. You know, they think it's going to put the choke on that Northwest Hydro. And yeah, I, I, not a lot of trust or love there at the moment. Maybe that will change. Yeah. Did did you all hear about SPPs ending the their imbalance market W E I S? Yeah, pushing everyone to Markets Plus if they want to yeah. hang out. It's yep. still operating. It just would end if Markets Plus developed. It's still operating now, though, right? The W E I S. Yeah. Yes. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's not. But they said current W E I S participants will have the option to join the RTO or participate in Markets Plus. Yeah. Until then. We remain fully committed to continue to provide Western reliability coordination and operating the WEIS market. So, is that uh, a release? Was that a release, or where did you report that, Jason? That's a statement we got. Uh, they seem to be a little cagey on this. I, I asked two of their spokespeople about it, no response. And then Dan um, went, asked them again, and we got this statement, not much elaboration. But it's in yeah. one of the articles. It was. A, is it in an article that we can all link to in the show notes? Yeah, it's in Abigail's story um, from Friday entitled FERC Filing Suggests Strong Transitions for Tri-State. It's in the context of a Tri-State story. Okay. Okay. One thing that was brought a very big focus at Krebsy, uh, and we'll, we'll get to this, I think, in our next story, is transmission. And a lot of the existing sort of iterative programs that are being pushed in or developed, I should say, the, the RAP, the EDAM, Markets Plus, um, deal with capacity planning in and resource adequacy in the case of the RAP, and then day ahead system dispatch in the case of Markets Plus and the EDAM. And this help get you different functions of an RTO, right? So we're thinking about like sort of taking out these slices and finding where benefits can be had in market integration. They don't address transmission in that same way. And I think that, to my mind, when I reflect back on the Cup Sheet, conversations, there's a myriad of challenges with transmission. And why don't get, the, it might be the third, it's sort of like the third leg of the stool here for a more efficient, uh, least cost energy transition system would be a better transmission planning and development process, which touches on a whole bunch of stuff, which we will talk about now. That's uh, a great segue. Yeah, yes. thank you. Paul, I think it's on you. Let's Let's do it. On May 4th, otherwise known as Star Wars Day, Ari Pesco, the director of Harvard Law's Electricity Law Initiative and hashtag energy Twitter celebrity, just like Ben, uh, contributed to an article in Utility Dive on FERC's notice of proposed rulemaking. The title of the NOPER is Building the Future Through Regional Transmission Planning and Cost Allocation and Generation Interconnection. And the title of Ari's article is Ari's article is Can FERC Convince utilities to build modern transmission systems, question mark, end quote. Ari's article includes a framing for the challenge of FERC 
a framing for the challenge FERC is facing that ties to his view of why utilities aren't building big transmission projects. He frames FERC's challenge as, quote, for FERC's rules to be successful, they must overcome utility incentives to overlook cost-saving technologies, prioritize local projects over regional investments, and thwart development of projects that might threaten their generation interests. He continues, because FERC's rules allow utilities to continue to monopolize local projects while forcing them to compete for the opportunity to develop large-scale projects, FERC now concludes its rules, quote, did not adequately encourage utilities to, quote, develop and advocate for regional investment, unquote. Ari suggests, too, what he refers to as modest changes to make the rule more effective. First, specify a minimum set of benefits for assessing transmission projects so that planners can't discard projects on a single metric. And second, let state regulators decide whether transmission should be developed competitively. If you're just catching up on the NOKER like me, you can go check out Dim DePeso's coverage of its release in the April 22nd uh, edition of Clearing Up. And for more of Ari's insights into the NOPER, which is a good entry point, I would say, for those of us uh, transmission planning enthusiasts, that's probably where I am. I'm a market enthusiast and transmission planning enthusiast, I'm not an expert. Uh a link to both of those articles will be in the show notes. You can read some more. We can become enthusiasts together and uh, and rely on experts like Ben to tell us what's going on here. Yeah, I would be. Th- thanks, Paul. I would be very wary of claiming any expertise in transmission planning. And because the more and more I learn, the more and more complex and challenging it seems. A lot of and, and I think Jason's article on this did uh, on Crepsy coverage talking about. Uh, state impacts uh, and the role of, of states in transmission planning did a very good job here of elucidating the fact that a lot of the FERC rules around transmission are very oriented, to my mind, very oriented towards the RTOs. And this is true of FERC generally, right? They're very focused on the RTOs and the West is sort of like out there doing their Western thing and will fly out occasionally and, you know, say nice things sometimes <laughs> and then leave. And like, I, it just, it just doesn't have as much sway. And so it's interesting to think of the context of this, rule, which is really asking for more integrated planning, multi-benefit consideration. Um, and uh, in the context of the really balkanized system that we have in the West, and one of the presentations that came up at Krebsy, and one of the nice things actually about Krebsy too, is that all the presentations are posted online and we can link to them in the show notes. Um, if you send uh, me the link, I can do that. I don't know if yeah, I can find them without I, you though. It's, it's uh, don't worry, I got you. <laughs> it's a, uh, but Keegan Moyer from Energy Strategies presented a slide that uh, showed what he you know, called the, the planning landscape of a, of a typical Western transmission provider. And there's a million arrows going everywhere. And there's five or six different places where any conversation takes place everywhere from you know, actual regional transmission planning, what we would consider broadly to be the transmission planning process, all the way down to the interconnection and transmission service. Um, you know, queues and like that's an area where we're actually kind of planning out transmission and development too. And it's the whole thing is a bit of a mess and it's recursive. And when I think about what FERC is trying to do, it sits uneasily on the Western landscape because we don't have a lot of entities that are truly empowered or with a mandate from a broad set of members to actually solve some of the thorny questions of planning which lines where who's going to benefit from them 
and therefore who's going to pay for them? And without answering those questions, we're kind of left with like the Spider-Man meme of everyone pointing at each other and saying, build more transmission. And everyone's looking around like, yeah, you should do it. You should do it. And I, I don't know how much that also that ultimately solves. Um, yeah, that's, that's what every, this is every conversation in WEC about transmission. Uh, it's, uh, it's truly the multiverse or whatever they call that. Anyway, uh, so I, I thought Jason did a good job of talking about like the role that, that states need to speak up. And if they have uh, a voice, you know, states ultimately with, with an input um, to FERC are going to have to deal with a lot of this implementation from a regulatory standpoint and getting smart on what making FERC, helping FERC help them um, is going to be quite the task because it's been sort of neglected over the last couple of years. Great promo. Great promo for your article, Jason. Yeah, I appreciate that. Apparently you're a subscriber or you're getting the free reads. I don't know there, Ben. But, um, <laughs> I'm working I so hard fair. to get that subscription. I felt All like right. it was fair to share. He was going to give his free time. So I oh, got We do three free reads a, a month anyhow. So. Yeah, exactly. That's, cool. that's fair. That's fair. I'm working on it, Jason. I'm working on it. Nice. Mark Orenshaw, uh, if you want Ben back as a celebrity guest host, maybe we can comp a, or come up. a subscription. Maybe. What do you What do you think this discussion of broader benefits would entail? Carbon decarbonization. Oh, certainly. I mean, there's there's. I think you can't go to to uh, hear the the convert. You know, one of the things that's also pretty striking about hearing all these regulators and utilities talk over the last couple of days uh, last week is how ingrained decarbonization is as a public policy objective. And that also is in conflict a little bit with some of the other states, right? Wyoming spoke up to this regard. And also uh, the the limited role of a regulator as an economic uh, regulatory body um, of, of a PUC and not necessarily able to consider all of the things that are included in public policy. But California already does a multi-benefit transmission planning process. I don't pretend to know if it's per perfect or not. But, you know, different projects will have multitudes of benefits and not, and it seems like a rational thing that people would be doing already to say like, hey, we should build a line here because they're going to try to build a lot of renewable energy there. And like, it would benefit everyone if we had better transmission to this resource rich area or sure. where this load is growing or like there's congestion reasons, resiliency reasons yeah. and decarbonization, long-term public planning uh, reasons. So like, they're not mutually exclusive and they're additive. Mm -hmm. It doesn't seem like everyone is doing it if we have to be told to do it. Apparently, yeah. yeah uh, that's a that's a false. I mean, who knows? But probably <laughs> not. That's not true reporting. You need to work on that if you're gonna end up a reporter in news data. I'm gonna stay on the opposition. It's called running my mouth. <laughs> okay. You do it really well. I'm not gonna lie. You're very skilled at it. I appreciate it. We, do, we are running out of time. Jason, what okay. be, what's your take? And Aaron, if you got a take. I was just saying, Kaiso does have that uh, public policy planning criteria along with economic and reliability. So, yeah, and I'm not sure about other regions. or so. Would love it Westwide. Yeah. Love to see it. All right. Uh, transmission. Are we, uh, we're moving on. We're transmitting okay. ourselves. Okay. Uh, Aaron, you have the next story. Sounds good. New Scale Power Inc. on May 3rd announced it had completed its merger with Spring Valley Acquisition, a publicly traded special purpose acquisition company. 
Shares of the combined company operating as New Scale Power Corp started trading on the New York Stock Exchange May 3rd under the ticker symbol SMR. New Scale has been owned by a Texas energy company, Floor Corp, which paid $30 million for a majority stake in 2011. Floor has spent $600 million developing New Scale's technology in the intervening years and retained 60% ownership after Tuesday's deal. Floor will continue to provide New Scale with engineering services, project management, management, and administrative and supply chain support. New Scale hopes to have its first reactor operating in 2029 and is working with Idaho National Laboratory and the Utah Associated Municipal Power Systems. It announced on April 25th that Doosan would start for uh, forging dyes for the upper reactor pressure vessel, marking the start of SMR production. Coverage and clearing up by Rick Adair. Go Rick. Go Rick. Yeah. Any takes here? I, this is a very Northwest. I mean, it's it's a very national news story that's Northwest centric on uh, UAMPs and New Scale being located in Oregon. Uh, I think it's a big news that they're going to start forging the upper reactor pressure vessel. Anything you see here, Jason, uh, you think is interesting or uh, any additional things you'd want to dive into a little bit more? Uh, yeah, it's been interesting to see you know the evolution of this company. Uh, DOE poured a lot of money into it. It doesn't appear to be going away. Uh, I think the merge company has a valuation of nearly two billion, uh, which will you know has access to a lot of capital, and start working towards commercialization. I think it's it's really exciting. I don't know, you know, on a on a local level when you start citing these things, what the reaction will be, and that's you know part of it. But um, when when you look at nuclear plants, particularly in California. This looks like a great option and um, awesome technology. And like I said, it's a, it's a full throttle effort. I don't see it slowing down. It's, it's great to see. Is there any, so as, who here has watched We Crashed on, uh, what, I think it was, it was Apple Plus, right? It was at Apple Plus. Anybody? No, I'm the only one raising my hand. I feel like I lived through it. I saw it. You saw it. You saw it live. Uh, is it, did you watch the yet, Gallery? Mm-mm. Okay. Well, uh, uh, spoiler alert. I mean, it happened in history. Uh, apparently, the S1 due diligence is where this really went south. And so, New Scale made it through the S1. The due diligence is other S1. They, they went public. But how, how much does that apply if you're using a SPAC? Does anybody here know IPOs and SPACs and, and the differences in the nuance in S1 filings on the two? Oh. I only got so much capacity for really nerdy regulatory stuff, <laughs> and it does not extend that far. Okay, we're going to have to find. But Gillary, you're a resident accountant. How uh, S ones and SPACs? I, I mean, don't know. All let I know, me tell I you, I audited a company that was preparing to go public, and we started working on their preparation for that IPO like five years ahead. So if you can save anything when it comes to regulatory, you know, jumping through hoops and everything, I think it's a great. Sounds like a great deal. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I, what I did learn from We Crashed, and you, Gillary, it seems like are underscoring this. There's a lot of due diligence that goes into going the, yes. issuing your IPO. And yeah. does that have any, can we read any tea leaves into the hopefulness of commercialization of this technology from that? Ben, do you think there's hope in the commercialization of this technology? It's, I don't, I, I think going public is great. And I hope there's more tools in the tool shed. Uh, to Jason's point, there's, like the actual project development components of building something like this are not to be found in going public, not to be found in an S1. No, it didn't even give you a tick more confidence. 
and the well, I mean, of this it technology. has more money now, which is great, but I, you know, project finance is different than equity raising. So sure. I, it's true. <laughs> like I, I feel like sometimes it, there's this, you know, the question of, okay, what, what do, what does the, the recording or some of the client compliance, what's that, um, the people who are holding those realms, right? What's their perspective on the financial forecast of a company? And if you're looking from a purely like regulatory or compliance perspective, just in certain parts of the business, it may not matter necessarily what those projections are in a different in different ways because you're more looking at you know, what's your, what, what were your balances? Can we, can we trust what your recordings were that you're the people who are overseeing those balances are, you know, are they viable? That's an interesting, yeah. Yeah. Well, I have some hope of commercialization of this technology. I'm all hands on deck when it comes to carbon-free resources um, and dispatchability and as a SMR, it's hopeful. I, I, you know, it's, it's, it's good. It's good. I hope. I hope uh, I hope we see something out of it. Okay, they've got some good, great momentum right now, and yeah. you know they've been around a while. They, like I said, they got a lot of R and D money from the government, so I, I just it'd be hard for me to see New Scale going away. You know, and they have won overseas awards too. There's been news about um, some projects, you know, project awards for development. And this is timely, though. Uh, because Paul, the next story, which I believe is for you, is about <laughs> problems that New Scale could help solve. Actually, natural man, you're a natural at this. Okay, <laughs> we're doing it. Uh, I'm gonna hit the typewriter, and I have the next story. Bam! Sunday, May eighth, the Wall Street Journal published an article by Catherine Blunt covering warnings from power grid operators that electric supply isn't keeping up with demand. The article covers recent reports, statements, and events out of Kaiso, Miso, and ERCOT. Uh, anticipating constrained power supply and extreme demand events. Catherine Blunt also wrote the February 18th piece that we covered on Public Power Underground on uh, America's power grid becoming, quote, increasingly unreliable, unquote, with a great graphic that I'm a big fan of. Bloomberg's Mark Chediak uh, covered a media call on Friday with California energy officials stating that California could be short about 1,700 megawatts this summer and that that gap may widen to about 1,800 megawatts by 2025. These national news articles come just when the Pacific Northwest Utilities Conference Committee, PNUC, published its most recent Northwest Regional Forecast that shows many Northwest utilities increasing how fast they expect demand to grow over the next 10 years as a result of climate change, electrification, population growth, and new industrial load. The NRF points to the Western Resource Adequacy Program under development by the Western Power Pool as an example of the ways Western utilities are coming together to address regional needs. Dan Catchful, a friend of the underground news data ambassador in the weeks, Jason and Abigail aren't, covered the NRF in its publication on April 29th edition of Clearing Up. And we'll link to all of these articles in the show notes. Um, let's kick it with to you, Ben. What do you think? What do you think about all of this national news? So- Kaiso, Miso, and ERCOT, right? So this isn't necessarily some isolated situation. Um, the volatility in like what volatility in markets generally, right? We we were talking about the pricing on natural gas, and we've got tightness in hydro in the West, and then I, we had the colder conditions in ERCOT uh, 
couple of days ago and I was just seeing an article in Bloomberg about how uh, natural gas production again sort of tanked a bit and was sort of not to the extent of obviously, but there were, you know, shadows of, of furry. Like we we're working through this kind of volatile time when yep. we're not historical record does not necessarily predict what the future is going to look like. And I, it's an interesting test for how quickly markets can adopt, adapt to those sorts of changing environments. Um, we obviously need more investment. It's not clear to me that there's a clear way to like direct that investment, right? If we're going to be tight, what, who needs to do what differently and why aren't they doing that? Um, I feel like answering those questions in more specificity would be useful. I don't want to just hand wave away and say that like renewable solves everything or say that like it's because we shut down a ton of gas and it's like all these gas stuff is sitting idle. That's not, I don't think those takes necessarily get at the specific instances of like, okay, well, why was this decision made that led to if a plant shut down, why did it shut down? And then in other cases, again, literally, like, who do you need? Who are you asking to do something differently? Because yeah. it, someone has to make a decision here. Yeah, I have some thoughts on this. I, I, I posted on Twitter on it a little bit. You know, first of all, I'm, I'm disappointed. I really am. I just 20 years of covering energy, 20 years of sitting in conferences with hundreds of highly paid people tackling these problems, why we couldn't do better nationally on this issue the importance of the grid to survival of the economy. And that's disappointing. And the other, the other thing I have a problem with is California calling this news conference. They told me, uh, they apologize for not inviting me. I should have been there too. But uh, the, the blaming of climate change, you know, and I know this is a touchy issue. Ben probably has something to say about this. I know you have a strong environmentalist uh, bent, as I do too. But when I first started seeing the sign of trouble was uh, Steve Berberich going to the Kaiser Board of Governors 2019 saying, we're going to be short. And that perked my ears up. And he wasn't talking about climate change. Um, he was talking about the evening ramp and dwindling imports. Then you have the August 2020 blackouts, which happened. And root cause analysis comes out. Once the CEC and the CPUC got their hands on it, they slapped climate change on the front and back of it, uh, I think it's become a weak excuse. There's other reasons for this, so that's a little little disappointing. I don't, I don't know. I, I don't. I don't. I don't disagree, Jason. In the sense that, like, climate change doesn't. It, it, it is a you know in the way the DoD talks about it, you know, is a force maximizer, right? It is a risk maximizer. Like we have, we don't have as much data to go off of when you go talk to utilities about how they're planning for peak capacity or energy droughts, you know, how are they planning the system a couple of years out? Well, we're using historical weather data and we're trying to use some sort of projections, sometimes not, on what that looks like in the future. We have less predictability on those models. So already we're flying with a little bit less understanding of what the realm of possibility of outcome might look like. That's a challenge from an operational standpoint. Then we get into these actual tight situations and you have a wildfire in a, in a you have coincident risk factors, right? You have a line goes down because of smoke or reduced solar production because of smoke. And these are issues that we face in the West. And I, low hydro and the volatility from hydro, those are each and of themselves results of increased climate volatility. 
I don't think it's fair, as you're correct to say, that climate change, you know, it's like we were all good and then climate change happened. It's like, no, yeah. climate change is something, especially for California, which is like, it's not like South Carolina who's like outlined using climate projections and their for, official forecasts. Like, no, <laughs> like, we know this is happening and we were pretty much, we were supposedly aggressive on considering it. And where has that gotten us ill-prepared for some of those impacts? Climate change doesn't really care about how we're planning, right? It's, it's, it's just this broader phenomenon. It's not like it's making a choice to single out California. It, Absolutely. I think, but you're right. It is like It does have a factor in each one of these components. It is not in and of itself the driver. Over-reliance sure. on hydro, for example, would be a driver when we have a low hydro year. Yeah, and um, you know, tight reserve margins, uh, the legislature not wanting new capacity built, and climate change is nothing new. We've known about it for decades. And, and demand is not the problem. California's record peak demand was in 2006. And there were several hotter days that month than we had in August 2020. I think the, the peak in 2021 was about 43 gigawatts uh, as compared to 50 gigawatts back in 2006. So we've always had hot weather. Uh, we have less demand because of rooftop solar. But uh, how are we going to electrify? How are we going to get all these EVs in, um, you know, uh, the California Energy Commission is getting ready this week to consider 30 new three megawatt diesel backup generators. They're building diesel all over San Francisco for these data centers. Man, it's kind of a mess, you know, and, and uh, I, I hate to be negative all the time, but uh, gosh, again, how, how are we going to electrify when we've got a grid? And the fact that they're warning so far ahead of time here, and, you know, they bet the farm on storage for this summer. Uh, Moss Landing is out. It's not going to be back till, uh, it'll probably be back for summer, but supply chain is really affecting a lot of the storage. It's just, it's an odd way to uh, plan an energy system from, from my perspective. I, I have to laugh. I, I was thinking about uh, that meme of the guy riding the bicycle who sticks a stick in the wheel and then falls off the bicycle. And it, it's kind of like, like, it, instead of doing like a reasonable demand response program or something that actually pays me to you know turn off my demand or something like that, instead we're just going to stick the stick in the spokes and say, "Well, why did climate change do this?" You know, yeah. and uh, that's does feel a little bit like that, yeah. Yeah, uh, and you know the they held this press briefing, and this happened with the blackouts too. New York Times climate blackouts, they're just going to repeat it. And that's a little annoying to me, but again, I don't want to be crotchety here. <laughs> we'll see. Uh, we can cut this if you don't like it, but I think of you as the Nate Silver of the energy beat. Uh, you're a contrarian to your core, and just like Nate Silver is a contrarian. Uh, I don't know if you like it or not. We can cut it if you don't like it. Doesn't bother me. Okay. <laughs> um, I will say, but on on like this understanding of climate change, I'm very um, like. Uh, empathetic to the issues around a changing system. And when you have a changing system, understanding tail events in that system is incredibly difficult. And that is what's happening, right? We are, our systems are changing. Our power system is changing. Our weather is changing. And we're all like these, these outages are tail events in a changing system. And, and understanding where those tail events occur under what circumstances is very difficult when the, everything's changing. That's where I th that's where I'm empathetic to the planner's problem. And there's a there's a there's another check on that too, which is you know how do you build the system to encompass those tail events 
And societally, do we want to make a choice to spend that amount of money? It would cost quite a bit to, you know, build yeah, up that if, way. And I'm, am I going to plan for the tail events or am I going to prepare for the tail events, right? Is this yeah. a resiliency in tail events or is this a, I'm going to make a, sure I, I, I build enough that even in a tail events, I'm far There's a new from. report out from uh, Grid Lab and Energy Innovation and Talos Energy today that looks at California in 2030 under an 85% um, decarbonized grid. So it's 85% by 2030. And they stress test it under a bunch of different scenarios around like, you know, low gas capacity, hydro volatility, really low hydro, um, long solar and wind droughts, and look at on it, you know, what is the worst possible day? And then how did these different portfolios and different scenarios hold up? Um, And it definitely points to an achievable, but challenging situation that we, we can do it the modeling shows obviously modeling is just one approach but like modeling shows that it's achievable but we do need to be clear-eyed about you know what kind of capacity we're taking offline and when um needless to say the report is not a full-throated endorsement of accelerated gas retirements um but it does look at areas where air pollution can be materially improved with targeted gas reti- uh, retirements without dramatic changes to reliability given these different stress stress constraints. And I think that kind of work is going to be increasingly important. And I mean, quite obviously is considering what happened in 2020. Yeah, if you, a great place to look is the NERC reports, the, the sober, dry um, assessment of things. You know, they've always <laughs> talked about coal plant retirements causing reliability problems. That's an unpopular kind of uh, take on things. But um, yeah, it's check out those NERC reports and they've warned of a lot of this stuff for a long time, especially Texas, which was really egregious. You know, they said back in 2011, you got to winterize your system. You're going to have problems. They didn't do anything. So there we go. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> we'll run out of time. Uh, yeah, this was uplifting. I enjoyed that. Um, yeah. <laughs> we, uh, we're going to have to take a, uh, a quick break. And when we come back, we'll close out the episode with a quick rundown of news stories that we didn't get to in our, TLDR segment that we're calling Energy West Light. First, Aaron has a promo. Take it away, Aaron. Northwest Public Power Association believes in power. For 82 years, NWPPA has supported public power utilities and other associates in the greater Pacific Northwest by offering education, training, communications, governmental relations, and services like RFP and job postings. In addition to public power, what else is important to NWPPA? Local control, member needs, integrity, and quality products and services. Today, NWPPA proudly serves 155 member utilities and more than 325 utility industry associate members. Learn more or register for a class at nwppa.org. That is nwppa.org. Believe in power. Thanks, Aaron. Uh, next up, we're going to TLDRing our way through the news in this segment we're calling Energy West Light. This is Energy West Light, a segment where we TLDR our way through the news. I'm Paul Dockery. And I'm Ben Sororia. And we're we lightening, lightening up, up, up. Energy, Energy West. West. Nailed it. Two next-generation battery companies, Group 14 Technologies and Sela Nanotechnology. Shout out to Mark Hughes and Sela, friend of the pod. We have uh, have announced pod have announced plans to operate factories in Moses Lake, Washington, 
aimed at the electric vehicle market. To learn more about the projects, see Rick Adair's article in Clearing Up. Casey Mahaffey reported in Clearing Up that groups on both sides of the debate on whether to remove four lower snake dams have turned up the heat on their public opinion campaigns in the week before Washington Governor Jay Inslee and Senator Patty Murray are expected to release a draft report analyzing if there are reasonable means to replace benefits of the dam. A cold April helped preserve snowpack in the Columbia Basin, but a lack of precipitation in the northern portion of the basin kept this summer's forecast for water volume at the Dallas Dam below the 30-year average. The April through September water supply forecast at the dam fell to 94 fell to 94% of average, a 3% point drop since last month, according to a May 5 briefing by NOAA's Northwest River Forecast Center and reported by Casey Mahaffey in Clearing Up. National natural, national natural gas values, thanks Ian for that tongue twister, ascended sharply this week with both spot prices and futures nearing an, or exceeding the $9 per MMBTU mark. Uh, according to an article written by Linda Daly Paulson in Clearing Up, with reported supply and production levels nearly level with the previous week's numbers and fairly normal Western weather, it seems that international supply concerns stimulating exports could be the only lever ratcheting up prices. NYMEX May natural gas futures ended at $8.78 per MMBTU immediately following the release of the U.S. Energy Information Administration storage report, according to Enerfax. The Henry Hub spot price was $8.41 per MMBTU May 5th, a week-over-week gain of $1.61. In news from the Potomac on May 5th, Energy Secretary Jennifer Granholm said the future of the U.S. solar industry is at risk in connection with a trade investigation currently underway at the Commerce Department. Secretary Granholm's statement followed a letter from nearly two dozen senators urging the Biden administration to move quickly to resolve the investigation, raising concerns that the commerce trade probe was causing, quote, massive disruption in the solar industry. In their letter to President Biden, the senators quoted a Wood McKenzie estimate that solar deployment could fall to 16 gigawatts annually, quote, if this current situation persists and tariffs are ultimately imposed. That is more than half the magnitude of solar capacity in the U.S. installed in 2021, the senator said. They also said that if the probe results in tariffs, the cost of solar power could increase, given that with crystalline solar photovoltaic modules subject to 250% tariffs, a typical 100-megawatt utility-scale solar project would face $62.5 million in duty exposure. For more information... See Jim DPS's article in California Energy Markets. Okay. Other brief mentions from the news roundup are that Avangard Renewables Golden Hills Wind Farm near Wasco in Sherman County, Oregon, started commercial operations on April 29th. Congratulations, Avangard. And just a day before, on April 28th, Duke Energy Sustainable Solutions started construction on the 120-megawatt jackpot solar project near Twin Falls, Idaho. It is expected to hit COD by year's end. Next up, Energy Northwest says construction will soon start on eight new charging locations on U.S. Route 12 through White Pass between eastern and western Washington. Lewis County PUD, uh, some friends of the pod there, is, are collaborating on the project. Love to see it. Spooky times in Montana. 
On April 29, Northwestern Energy asked the Montana PSC for emergency authority to take over and operate Sleepy Hollow oil and gas before Winifred, Montana, the town served by the small utility, loses natural gas service. Was that Ian or was that you? I, I see you. That was a little extra English. There's some that's, English on it. Yeah, that's nice. <laughs> uh, and the last bit from the news roundup, the conservation group Wild Orca confirmed a new baby among the K-pod of southern resident killer whales. We're finishing oh. out on some good news. That's it's yeah. the first in 11 years, closing out the positive energy of public power. Underground. K-pod, the, uh, the official pod, Orca pod of. Public Power Underground. That's the official pod of the under, Public Power Underground. That's all for TLDR. Thanks to Public Power Underground's production partners at News Data for letting us use their leads. And thanks to Ian for compiling them this week. If you like Energy West Light, you'll probably like en- News Data's Energy West podcast, which gets published weekly. Uh, Jason Fordney is on it. Dan Catchpole, Abigail Sawyer just was on it last week. It's a great podcast that's every week and maybe a little bit more professional. You ready? I don't know about that. Now back to close out the episode because that's That's Energy Energy West West Light. That's great. Perfect. No notes. Nice. Just, we're killing it. Yeah. We're killing it yeah, on this. I think so. I don't know if there's anything else to talk about. Yeah. So you're, uh, you're, you were once a solar developer. These commercial commerce departments uh, yeah, are going to add $62 million to this that's, 100 megawatts. It's bad too. There's a ton of uncertainty. And then if they actually result in a finding that there has been that additional tariffs are needed, uh, they ultimately don't need to say what those tariffs are until 2025, really, and then they can enact retroactive tariffs. So it's really causing a huge disruption to anyone trying to build a solar project and needing to import panels because they literally don't know what the price is because they don't know if they're going to get hit with retroactive tariffs. It's a total, it's a, yeah, it's a mess. On top of supply chain issues, which are real in the solar industry, on top of everything else. It's it's uh, unforced error. Triple whammy. Yeah. Hopefully Anything it resolves soon. Yeah. Anything else there, Aaron or Jason, that you wanted to dig in a little bit more or comment on? Ben might have noticed that uh, Eric Blank from Colorado PUC was really concerned about this and asking for help at the conference. And it's also interesting, you know, this came by request from one uh, solar company, Oxen in San Jose, to investigate whether cells and modules from certain countries, Cambodia, Malaysia, are circumventing the tariffs. Uh, so yeah, that's, that's a biggie and I'm really making big waves right now. Guillory, you got anything? (laughs) I'm just soaking it all up. Honestly, I'm trying to be a sponge over here. A lot of this just goes way over my head. I'm in a completely different world. So, (laughs) uh, there was also some earnings, uh, reported in clearing up. I did not read them. Guillory, did you Q Q1 earnings reports? Okay. Well, next Mm -hmm. time we'll, uh, Get a debrief from you. I could have included that and you would have commentary on them. I mean, uh, next time I'll think about it. I'm so time. sorry, Guillory. So sorry. In the next six months, yeah. I'll take the time. <laughs> Notice um, SCE, Southern California Edison, said it's going to be seeking recovery of billions of dollars, 2017 and 2018 wildfire and mudslide events. Eight billion. Um, so that's been a back and forth thing. I remember the PUC turned down Edison for wildfire cost recovery back in 2017. We're in a completely different world now, AB 1054. 
And uh, I wonder if you're someone that lost your house in a mudslide, will you end up with a charge on your bill uh, to pay, you know, to help the utility pay for it? Yeah, that's one little takeaway from SCE earnings. Thank you, Jason. You get all the best coverage here, Ben. Cost mount, the cost mount. Yep. Um, yes. Okay. That's all the news we're covering this week. The next episode will be recorded live at the Northwest Power, Public Power Association's annual meeting in beautiful Coeur d'Alene, Idaho on May 24th. So if you're in attendance in Coeur d'Alene, stop by to say hello. To make sure you don't miss it or bonus episodes in the meantime, you can sign up for an unintrusive newsletter with links to all the ways to consume this fascinating content at publicpowerunderground.substack.com. Otherwise, you can subscribe on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcast, or your favorite podcast app. You can also find our merchandise on Shopify by searching for Public Power Underground and get that good swag. Really wonderful job today, Ben. It was really nice to have you as a celebrity guest Thank host. You do, do you feel the value and appreciate it? Did it feel good? It feels great. It feels like it's a public benefit to talk about public power. It's a beautiful day for it. It's great. I love I what really, you guys do. Big fan. I, I uh, really appreciated your takes on things. You're going to have to come back, I think, at some point. Man, you may have to take over my role. Who knows? I you, No one wants that. Uh, <laughs> That's very true. <laughs> Guillory, Guillory, do you feel valued and appreciate it? Is it good to be back? I do. It's great to be back. Thanks, Paul. Yeah. Feels authentic to have you doing Aaron reports again. It will always be Aaron <laughs> reports. Whoever reports because I know. of your stardom. I'd love to get the Aaron reports with the mug. I'd love to make a little, like add a little typing feature. How cool would that be? Customize yep. Aaron reports I with Aaron reports. I bought one. I got all, I, mean, I don't have all oh, the merch, but I got all the merch. Oh yeah. One. It's Great. all good. Jason, do you feel valued and appreciated? I do, Paul. I'd feel a little more valued if I was to get um, some free swag. Nope. From Public Power Underground. <laughs> nope. I did ask my mom what, uh, what Public Power Underground merch she wanted for Mother's Day when I was talking to her on Mother's Day. So my mom is actually going to end up getting free Public Power Underground merch, but not you, Jason. It hurts a little bit. Yeah, gonna, what was that? It was where's the merch, period, sent, period. Yep. <laughs> yep. That was it. <laughs> Got to get some merch and then I'll, I can file with you for cost recovery on that. Is that how that works, Paul? <laughs> Zing. I got expensive. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Uh, as always, send any news, questions, opinions, corrections, or complaints to Paul, unless it was me, you can send that to me too, uh, on Twitter, at a power manager, or if you're a friend of the underground, you can send any of us a note. You don't have to be subscribed to Newsdata's weekly newsletters to get this podcast, but it sure makes the podcast make a lot more sense. That's all for this week. Thank you for tuning in. Roll on. We're likely recruiting you to come and join on. Roll on, enthusiasts, roll on. Public Power Underground is a production of Klatskin IPUD and News Data. The views expressed here are own and not the official views of Klatskin IPUD, News Data, or the organization of the guests also appearing on Public Power Underground. Public Power Underground is public power and public power adjacent news from a power department's perspective. It's written and directed by Klatskin IPUD's power department, led by me, Paul Dockery, and it's edited and published by the stellar team of Pioneer Utility Resources, led by associate producer Sarah Wooden. Our theme song, Roll On Enthusiast, was rewritten... Uh, performed and recorded by Aaron Guillory, who was here today to really get the applause. Well done. That is a great theme song. I think it's remarkable work. It's played every week and every time. I'm like, yes, 
Yes, uh, we don't always get it right, but we try. Thank you, thank you very much, Guillory, and Ian Bledsoe, who uh, we got to get him back on at some point. And special thanks to our celebrity guest host Ben uh, for participating in this week's episode, and his friends at RAI or RMI for letting him do it. Uh, thank you very much. You did a great job. I really appreciated you. Uh, Public Power Underground is for electric utility enthusiasts. Public Power Underground. Worry about and appreciate it. Some people way smarter than us.